Previously on Beta. I don't like people playing music in his garage. Well, I don't like this authority trip that you're always laying on me, man. Hey, you just wasted Elvis Costello. But what about Tammy Metzler? I mean, her whole thing is being anti-this and anti-that. Hello, Dan. Are you surprised? This is what you've reduced me to. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Today, novelist and essay writer extraordinaire Sloane Crosley joins us to talk about her latest novel, Cult Classic. It's about a young woman who keeps running into her ex-boyfriends. Anyone you're with, I think part of growing up, um, is realizing that you can have magic in a relationship and you can also figure out what is good enough for you. Also, music journalist Karen Rose on the iconic singer, songwriter, poet, painter, and author, Patti Smith. People just couldn't understand turning her back on fame and walking away from playing a football stadium in Italy to, you know, 60,000 people. But first... Comedian Cristela Alonso. She is on top of her game in her latest Netflix special, Middle Classy. Whether she's talking about her love of zombie movies, how she is enjoying getting older, or learning to use health insurance for the first time, Cristela delivers a barrage of funny and smart jokes. She also reveals some fun facts about herself in Middle Classy. We learn that she is trilingual and that her teeth were so expensive that when she dies, she wants an open mouth casket. Christella joined us from her home in Los Angeles to talk about Middle Classy and to fill us in on what's changed in her life since her previous special, Lower Classy. The past couple of years from Lower Classy to Middle Classy, I really got to be more comfortable and aware of who I am and speaking to so many people in the community. Uh, and um, community, I mean, <clears throat> not even just Latino, but like people that grew up lower income, people that grew up in poverty, people that, you know, just first generation immigrants in general, you know, there's just a connection that made me realize like, oh, you know what, where I am now is such a luxury for me that, you know, I think a lot of people take it for granted, the access to health care, being able to go to therapy, just being able to do things, getting glasses, you know, it's, it's like this thing where so many people take it for granted because it's always been part of their life. But for me, I wanted to explain to people that it was a big deal for me. I grew up in poverty. And now as an adult, I have money I never thought I had, you know, and now I go crazy. Hell, yeah. <laughs> Guess who buys bottled water? <laughs> I go to Target, I buy regular price stuff. <laughs> you peasants, go get your red tag clearance. <laughs> and we have this perception that when we grow up and we hit a certain age, we need to know and have access to everything. And, you know, we just assume that everybody does. But we understand, especially in the past couple of years, you know, in, in the media, we see that so many of us struggle. Yeah, very well said. One of the things you talk about in Middle Classy is your love of zombie movies. Can you tell us about that? <laughs> I do. You know, it, it's this thing. I, I love zombies. First of all, I always say that as a Mexican-American, like, uh, I grew up eating barbacoa, which is like cow brains. And I always said, like, 
Mexican Americans, like in my family, we've been training to be zombies. Like, <laughs> like we've been doing it since day one. Yeah, you know, so. you're early adopters. You're the pioneers of it. <laughs> but with the zombie movies, I love watching zombie movies. I like I'm obsessed with them. We know what's going to happen. But you still want to know how you get to that point, you know? And I, to me, like, when I see it, I see these zombies. And every zombie me- movie, though, there's always that scene where you realize, oh, my God, there are zombies. And there's never just one zombie. We never have that moment in the movie where it's just the first zombie. When we realize there's zombies, there's always, like, 30 of them. But to get to 30? How do we do that? And then I started thinking, oh, you know Why? It's because we never show that scene in the movie where the assholes are walking around like, it's my right to get bit by a zombie. (laughs) It's my right as an American to get bit by a zombie. (laughs) You're not supposed to pick how you die, stupid. When the pandemic happened, I was a big supporter and still am of medicine and science, you know, and it was this thing where I couldn't understand that there were people that had gotten to this point where they decided that science and medicine was just a suggestion, you know, and it was this thing where you realize, like, that's what happened when I tied the pandemic to the zombie movies. The whole thinking was, you know, it's like. No one wants to be a zombie. Like, that's not the scene in the movie that you see. Like, it's my right as an American to be a zombie. Like, nobody says that, you know? So (laughs) I I thought it was a realistic way of saying it where you don't sound condescending, but it it really kind of, the analogy makes sense. Because I think all of us have seen seen zombie movies. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's a great analogy. Brilliant on your part to do that. That was very good. You mentioned in your special that you're trilingual. What, what languages do you speak? I think I know at least what two of them are. I speak Spanish, English, and Caucasian. That's what I say. It's like, yeah. it's like English, but you use words that you're not used to. I, I use organic and deductible as examples. But there are some times where I'll talk to a friend, like friends of mine, and they'll use words, and I'm like, I don't know that word. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? it's like, not yeah. only the word, but the cadence, the way that they do it. It's, you know, I always say, like, with my friends, the ones I grew up with, I can say kind of like, hey, like, shut up. That was stupid, you know? And it's, you know, in Caucasian, it's like, wow, we're a little off track with that, aren't we? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's same goal, different intonation. A lot of people call it code switching. I mean, mm. that's what it is, right? It's the, right. this idea, you know. And I always say code switching when I speak about it and when I talk about it in interviews because I want people to know I'm aware the term exists. I just think it's funnier when you use Caucasian because Caucasian is just a funnier word. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, because it's got the K sound twice. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You know, people don't realize that in stand-up, writing the joke, for me, like writing the joke is – it's a science, right? And, you know, for me, like uh, when you write a bit and you try to think of a punchline, you always try to get the better word, right? So instead of if you're going to use a joke about a bird, you don't say bird, you can use parakeet because parakeet is funnier. I had to learn English by watching TV shows like The Price is Right, you know, and white people, you messed with me. Plinko is not a real word. Screw you. <laughs> I trusted you. I used to learn your words and I'd incorporate it in everyday life. I can't go today, I feel plinko. (laughs) Turns out it wasn't a real word. I love that word. 
I want to name my kids Blinko. Because that sounds Mexican. Blinko, ven pa'ca. So did you learn Caucasian when you went to college? <laughs> I learned, I did. I actually, you know, I grew up in a very predominantly Latino neighborhood. I mean, really, you know, here's how it was. In my high school, we had maybe, and I'm not kidding, three white students. And even if you weren't friends with them, you all knew who they were, you know? So it wasn't very diverse, you know? And then when I went to college, I went to college uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. And the college that I went to was in this kind of like affluent area in uh, St. Louis. And I realized I had no idea that even though we technically spoke the same language, we didn't. Right, my freshman year, my roommate, she was from Tennessee. She hadn't met a Latina before. Mm. No one in her family had. Her mom was with her to drop her off, right? Her mom uh, wasn't sure if I spoke English. We had been talking all day. So I don't know what she thought, like maybe I was just gonna forget run out of English halfway through the day, you know, like, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. Are you sure? No, yeah, no, no, no. Trial expired, upgrade, no, out of order, no. When we think of like uh, someone like me, like a brown woman, we usually think not even necessarily Latino, we think Mexican. It's kind of weird how for the longest time, you know, a lot of people's thoughts think that if you're brown, you're Mexican, Latino. And that just actually shows you what kind of exposure some people have. Some people might not know that about like Puerto Rico, Cuban, Dominican Republican, everything, you know, which is why when I talk about stand-up, I try to make it very specific about my life because I don't like trying to make assumptions, these grand statements like, well, you know how we all do it because we don't all do it like that. Uh-huh. You know, so it's like in order to be universal, you have to be specific. Uh-huh. And plus, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to be universal and at the same time to tell, to sort of separate yourselves from the other, your fellow comedians by by talking about your own story. Absolutely, because that's that's the only thing that sets you apart. Yeah, and you've led a v- and continue to lead a very interesting life. So yeah. <laughs> why wouldn't you do that? So there you go. Yeah, cow brains, everything. <laughs> We've learned Caucasian, so many great things. Uh, so many fun facts. Yeah. Oh, so many fun facts. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't like growing older, but you actually love it. Why? I love it. It's just, you know, you know what it is? The, the moment, uh, the older I get, the more comfortable I am with who I am. And I realized that when I was younger, you know, it's this idea that when you're in school, you want people to like you. There's this idea. And and look, it's kind of, it's embedded in you. It, you're conditioned to think like that from all of the high school movies you grew up with, <laughs> right? It's always, it's always, everybody wants to be hot, good looking, and popular, right? Nobody, there's no high school movie where they're like, man, let's talk about the academic decathlon team, right? <laughs> Which, and I say that because I was in the academic decathlon team all four years in high school, right? And to me, like, I thought I was cool for doing that, right? But it wasn't the, like, I never sought to be the popular person. But at the same time, when you learn that being popular is like the thing or whatever, you want people to like you. Mm-hmm. And to me, when I was in my teens and then 20s, especially, 
I wanted everybody to like me, you know? And then if they didn't, I always thought it was my problem. I'm like, what did I do wrong? And then in my 30s, I started thinking, you know what? I don't need to be liked by everybody. I mean, we don't have to. We just have to kind of like, you know, in a way, we kind of have to find our own tribe, right? Like we got to find our own people. Now in my 40s, I'm like, you know what? I don't need anybody. I got plants to water. <laughs> you know what I like about it? At 43, I'm not old, but I'm not young. <laughs> right in the middle. I kind of feel like I'm an iPhone 6. <laughs> yeah. I know I'm not the newest phone out there, but guess what? I'm affordable and I get the job done. Like, that's <laughs> I was uh, talking to a friend of mine a little while ago, and I was saying, there's nothing better to me than being in my apartment and just looking at my apartment and looking at my plants and not having to go anywhere and just enjoy being by yourself. I also just think that with age, it's just, it's such a sign of where you've come from and where you are. Like, what a great journey it is. There's something so great about that. Definitely, yeah. It sounds like you're looking to start a hate-hate group. Can you tell us a bit <laughs> yes. about that? Well, you know, I, like the whole thing is people, there has been this, you know, increase in like hate groups, even though they might thinly veil themselves as not being that, everybody else is like, you know we're not dumb, right? Like we know what it is. <laughs> and then I started thinking about it and I was like, you know, I need, like, we need to counter that. There is a, a movement. Like, we have a lot, we can, we can identify certain groups that are, like, hate groups, but you don't really know who the hate, hate groups are. And that is what I want to start, a group where we hate, hate. Like, mm. you have a group, you know, like the KKK that has been around for decades, forever. I'm going to start a group, and it's a hate, hate club. <laughs> We hate hate, and we use brown sheets so that they can be dirty and we're okay with it. Now, I'm, I'm pitching it to you, okay? Because I'm still, I'm still working it out, okay? So it's a hate hate group, and it's for everybody, but it's only for Latinos, okay? <laughs> I call it the que, que, que. Because <laughs> every day I wake up, I watch the news, I'm like, que? Que, que? In Caucasian, that's what? What, what? When James Corden announced he was leaving his late-night talk show, you said you wouldn't mind doing it, and I think you would be fantastic. What kinds of things would you do on The Late Late Show with Cristela Alonso? You know, I've thought about this, and let me say, I don't normally, I don't normally, uh, I'm not very vocal when I want certain things, or at least I haven't been in the past. But when that was announced, I wanted to make it clear that I at least wanted to have the chance Mm -hmm. to meet with people, you know, in charge to see if, you know, just to let them know that I was interested. And to me, you know, like, I grew up watching 
the late night shows, you know, you you watched uh, not only like Johnny Carson and Letterman and Conan and stuff, but you also watched the Dick Cavett show. You used to, you know what I mean? There's so many shows with interviews. And one thing I've learned, the job of a late night host is to make sure that the guests look good. And that means you don't necessarily have to laugh at their jokes or what have you. You have to be interested in who you have on the show, which means that you don't necessarily need to have guests that are pushing the latest project because sometimes the ones that aren't pushing it are still interesting as hell. Mm. That's that's how I approach it. That's a good attitude, and that's what we need. Christella Alonso, thank you for joining us. Congratulations on your special middle classy. It's Plinko. I love it. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Christella Alonso is a comedian, actress, writer, and producer. Her latest Netflix comedy special is Middle Classy. You can find out more about Christella at wpr.org slash beta. He literally is just sort of harnessing the wellness movement and technology and uh, creating these packages for people with the intent of getting them over their romantic past in various different ways. Coming up, Sloan Crosley talks about her latest novel, Cult Classic. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Sloane Crosley is the author of three essay collections and two novels. She has an uncanny gift for writing funny dialogue. Very funny dialogue. But you don't have to take my word for it. Not that you would. Steve Martin said this about Sloane's essay collection, Look Alive Out There. Quote, Sloane Crosley does the impossible. She stays consistently funny and delivers a book that is alive and jumping. Unquote. Now Sloane is back with another novel. It's called Cult Classic, and it focuses on a 37-year-old woman named Lola who keeps bumping into her ex-boyfriends in New York City. Not an uncommon feat, but it's a bit suspicious that it keeps happening in a five-block radius. And as it turns out, Lola's former boss, Clive Glenn, has something to do with these supposedly random encounters. Sloane joined us for a consistently fun interview just like Steve Martin said, about cult classic and why she decided to write it. I wrote it out of avoidance, which is not necessarily a great motivation to do anything creative, but it is a great way to get things done in general, um, where you don't want to do something else, so you do this other thing. But I had truly avoided writing about uh, romance, um, dating, dating in New York. I just felt like these subjects are very cliche. At their best, they're just sort of well-trodden. And... I finally thought, you know, this is insane. I'm right. I'm avoiding writing about something I really care about that takes up most of my brain, the brains of everyone I've ever met, because I'm worried about response or I'm worried about being pigeonholed as a certain kind of writer. Um, and so I just sort of waited like a like a tiny, tiny little baby cobra snake until I could <laughs> uh, sink my teeth into a, a hopefully creative way to tell a romantic New York story. And that's exactly what you've done. And, thank and you. an original. Thank you for doing that. And also a very original romantic I New York story. I hope so. I hope so. It has it has some strange elements um, that are a little bit more than just people sitting in a bar feeling bad for themselves. 
<laughs> mm-hmm, and that's what that's what makes it so good. Uh, your protagonist is named Lola, and over the course of a few days, she keeps running into some of her ex-boyfriends. What what effect do these encounters have on her? You know, I think that there's the um, intended or desired effect, um, and then what actually happens. So I think what the, what's supposed to happen is that she keeps on running into these people as long as she steps within a five-block radius of uh, this sort of cult-like institution, which we can get into. But she keeps on doing this, and it's supposed to bring her closure. It's supposed to set her up so that she can put the past to bed and marry her fiancé, who she loves. But she has a lot of doubts about marriage as an institution. There's a lot of ethical and philosophical questions in the book. And instead, it's just wildly confusing. So if you imagine picking up your phone right now and, and scrolling through and looking at text messages Uh, be they with friends or former lovers or or even um, current people you once fought with from, you know, I don't know, 2013, you would be sort of sucked back into that moment and to those emotions or those memories would become emotions again. And so that's sort of what happens to her uh, IRL, as it were. Yeah. So she gets very confused. (laughs) Yes, and rightfully so, yeah. And her fiancé who you mentioned, uh, he, his name is Boots, and he's a glassblower. And yes. it's worth pointing out that he's very tall, six foot three. What impact does Lola randomly meeting all of these exes have on her relationship with Boots? Well, the, yeah, they're all shorter. No, I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really weak premise for a novel. It's just a, it's a woman and a bunch of short men. <laughs> no, I think what happens is, is, you know, anyone you're with, I think part of growing up um, is realizing that you can have magic in a relationship and you can also figure out what is good enough for you. Um, And that kind of language gets a bad rap. It sounds like settling. It sounds sad. It sounds like a betrayal of your sort of inner child. But all these people have different qualities than he has. And so she is sort of, again, sort of sucked back in is the best way I can put it. It feels like a whirlpool into wondering if you know, the qualities that XYZ person has might have been better and would be better for her current self. You know, it's it's a bad state to be in to be doubting your relationship and then have all these people that you're looking at through rose-colored glasses come trotting through your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Lola used to work as a writer for a magazine called Modern Psychology, which was run by a man named Clive Glenn. Can you tell us a bit about Clive? Clive, okay, so you know how writers will often say, oh, I miss this character, this one speaks to me, and I've never really plugged into that um, because I think it sounds uh, vaguely pretentious, but I I miss Clive, I really Mm. do. Mm. So Clive is this larger-than-life figure, a cult of personality, if you will, uh, who, when he was running this magazine before it folded, became this sort of cult pop psych guru kind of person where his face, you know, we don't really have one of these, but you can imagine um, what one would look like, um, where his face sort of appeared on the side of tote bags and he had his own podcast and he uh, created a a drinking game based off of the uh, DSM manual. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he has basically uh, started this uh, experiment, this kind of high class um, upscale mind control cult. And they have this relationship that is you know, what I like about the book is that she's 37. So it's 
you're not wondering if they're going to get together, but it's it's an old enough relationship where they've had these different roles for each other. So he's been her mentor. They have this brother-sistery relationship. There was sexual tension back in the day, and now there's really no such thing. And now he's just sort of this cross um, that she has to bear, um, but is also someone she really loves. And so it's this complicated relationship that, in a way, is my favorite one of the book. Mm, yeah, mine too. And you mentioned mind control a couple of minutes ago. What what can uh, you tell us about the belief system that Clive is trying to push on his followers? Well, Clive is a very modern cult leader. And I should say that for those interested in cults in general, in the Nexium documentary in Wild Wild Country, this is perhaps not the book for you, as much as I hate to discourage a sale. <laughs> but uh, he he. It's not coercive persuasion. He literally is just sort of harnessing the wellness movement and technology and uh, creating these packages for people with the intent of getting them over their romantic past in various different ways. Uh, And so Lola's, um, not to spoil it too much, but it's called The Classic. It's one of the ways that the the book title works. Um, And basically it's used through, it's not, you know, it's presented as this grand speculative fiction in the book, but I think that we're quite close to it, which is through social media, through the power of suggestion, um, through manipulating Google search results, uh, just sort of basic techniques combined with a little bit of old-fashioned group meditation, Clive is convinced, and it actually works, that he can drag any one of her exes uh, anywhere he wants. And, you know, in the book, it costs about $250,000 for this um, experience. But in real life, I think if you gave me 50 bucks... (laughs) I think I could. T- I don't think it would be that hard. And your internet, and you know your Instagram password. I think I could put you and someone you don't necessarily want to see in a restaurant tonight. Mm. At one point, uh, a character says that quote: "Everyone is living in separate narratives. Marriage is agreeing to live in someone else's narratives." Unquote. What What do you personally think of this idea? Oh, I think it's really cynical. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of uh, broad sweeping comments, um, or even maybe uh, sort of exhaustive comments about romance in the novel that are presented by different characters um, where I think when you're in New York and um, probably other cities as well, uh, you get exhausted um, of dating and you, and you think that it's just, it doesn't seem about a partnership and you're constantly watching your own relationships almost through a hot air balloon. Um, so you're putting every, everyone's putting everyone on trial. You know, are you the kind of person who does this? Or you have this kind of life, this kind of apartment, this kind of job. Oh, you didn't get that joke. Or you, you know, you left a wet towel on the bed, which of everything I, <laughs> I've said is really the, the crime, let's face it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Divorce. Grounds for divorce. Yeah. Um, but, and so... This concept of does your story meld up with mine is is a horrible way to date and a horrible way to to look at somebody as opposed to building a story together and being a little bit more malleable. But it's a struggle as you grow up um, to not be formed by your past experiences so much that you have no room for a new kind of story. So that statement, marriage is agreeing to live in someone else's narrative, is the statement of somebody who is not yet willing to be in a serious relationship. Mm, very well said. And of course, then if we factor in online dating and then the use of internet apps for, for dating, that, that complicates the whole, the whole thing further, doesn't it, dating? It absolutely does. I mean, I think that, you know, I personally um, am, am 
just blessed to have limited experience <laughs> with this. But, you know, I'm not concussed. I live in the world. And and so, uh, you know, I was able to, I think, hopefully skewer that. Um, at least, you know, you can tell, I think, the parts of the book where I just really let her rip and had, have had a lot of fun with it. And there's a passage in the middle where I just go to town on um, dating apps. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's a, it's a great passage too. If you don't mind my asking, how has writing cult classic changed the way you think about your own ex-boyfriends? Oh, no, I don't mind. I mean, I think it's sort of, you know, none of them are my ex-boyfriends, <laughs> but it would be sort of disingenuous to react to that with what ex-boyfriends? <laughs> don't know what you're talking about. I've yeah. never dated anyone. Um, <laughs> I think it's maybe, you know, the book is dedicated uh, for the men, and then there's a, a bit of a corrective for some of the men. Yes. <laughs> um, and I do think that even with the ones that I found, uh, you know, who behaved in a way that I found to be unconscionable, the ones that I hurt, the ones that hurt me, there's sort of a beauty in the fact that we all landed here in the same city at the same time. It's It's kind of unbelievable, and you can't help but love them a little bit, even the terrible ones. <laughs> and so I think that it made me, um, through this uh, actually rather cynical streak that she has in the book, you know, she has it for 300 pages. So you're mm. going to start thinking really about other people in your own life as you write it and also recognize that, you know, she is not me. She's she's hopefully, I, I took every sort of bad quality I have and just sort of cranked it up <laughs> as, as high as the dial would go. But at the same time, you sort of recognize her complicity in a while, after a while, you know, in certain patterns that she has. So uh, I don't really write as a therapy exercise, either with the narrative nonfiction or with uh, fiction, but inadvertently, uh, it's made me feel a lot warmer towards everyone I've ever known. Well, that's good. You mentioned bad qualities that you have. What, what I, bad can you qualities do you have? <laughs> well, no, honestly, I can't. I kind of, I kind of doubt. I'm wonder. I'm curious because I can't imagine that you would have bad qualities. But I don't know you very well. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy my mother arranged this interview. <laughs> I think you know the the qualities are a certain nitpickiness, a certain selfishness. I think, honestly, what happens is, is you're still, there's a shame, I think, in the culture in general in still getting to know yourself after a certain age um, and then potentially behaving badly or uh, sending mixed signals, mixed messages um, after, let's say, 25. <laughs> so there's this sort of jokey uh, trope of like, oh yeah, your 20s are for figuring it out. And, you know, your 30s are, are for really like, thank God you know who you are now. And your 40s, you don't have to worry about anything anymore. And that sounds lovely. And it is mostly true, but it doesn't leave any room for someone who's, let's say, 37, like our heroine is, to come out and say, I actually don't know what I'm doing. Um, so I think that perhaps my bad personal qualities come from not feeling like someone or presenting as someone who uh, is fairly articulate and knows, uh, has a lot of opinions and knows exactly what she wants um, and then occasionally does not. When can we look forward to watching Cult Classic, an adaptation of it on a streaming service? That yes, should be happening on a streaming soon, <laughs> When I, well, in all seriousness, I'm working on the screenplay right now. So, um, I mean, Ooh, I'm so okay. excited to talk to you guys. And you're also just holding it up, you know? I could be working on oh, it right great. now. <laughs> but what can you, but you're not, but you're, you are, but you're not working yes, sorry, on Yes, sorry, yeah, that was an elaborate. Oh, yeah, no, I am yeah, writing I the screenplay. Sorry, oh, you are, okay. Sorry, that was an elaborate okay. way to say it. Yeah, I am writing the screenplay, which is really exciting for me. 
Um, mm-hmm. I don't know when uh, it would appear. I think it's, you know, there are many steps before that happens, but um, it's it's due fairly, fairly soon. Excellent. Um, and um, it's great because it's a whole different way to tell a story that I still care about. Um, and it's also, frankly, I really enjoy writing dialogue. I think it's apparent in the novel um, mm-hmm. and hopefully it'll come across on the screen as well. Absolutely. Now, can you say who, who you're writing it for? Can you tell I us that? I think I can. Apple? Oh, what Apple. Are gonna, Apple what are they going to okay. sue me? They don't have a legal yeah, exactly. team. No, you know they don't. Mean? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Come at me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Apple. So it's yeah. exciting because it's like they're, um, you know, I, I just, I'm sort of very interested in what they're doing. And uh, they seem to be, uh, thus far, a streaming service that's untouched by too much scandal. So that's good. Exactly, and no legal teams, so that's yeah. great. And we'll zero, there is zero, everyone knows there are zero lawyers that work for Apple. That's right. <laughs> we all know that. <laughs> Sloan Crosley, thank you very much for joining us. Congratulations on Cult Classic. Thank you for having me. It was really a joy. Sloan Crosley is an essayist, novelist, and a delightful person to talk to, even more so to listen to. If you don't believe me, ask Craig Ferguson. He had her on his show five times. Sloan's latest novel is Cult Classic. You can find out more about Sloan and her work at wpr.org beta. I remember seeing her do it in Paris on Arthur Rimbaud's birthday. I, I really feel like the entire audience levitated off the floor a few inches. Coming up, music journalist Karen Rose on Punk's Poet Laureate the one and only Patti Smith. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Patti Smith is often described as the poet laureate of punk. I actually just described her that way in the previous sentence. But Patti is much more than that. She's also a writer, a musician, a visual artist, and a painter. Music journalist Karen Rose knows all about Patti's talents. Karen is the first woman to write a book about Smith. It's called Why Patti Smith Matters. And it turns out there are a lot of reasons why she matters. She's had a huge impact on rock and roll, visual art, and prose. Check out her beautiful memoirs, Just Kids, and Year of the Monkey. Beta's resident musicologist, Steve Gotcher, talked with Karen Rose about the life and work of Patti Smith. He asked Karen, what is it about Patti's approach to the arts that makes her so unique? She is not precious about it at all. She views it as work just like going to a factory is work. And she just shows up every day and does it and doesn't pretend that it's magic and doesn't try to glamorize it or be cute about it. She's just there doing the work. The V of lightning licks all over them. The end, the great rhythm lit for them. Oh, get me out of here, honey. White lightning kick my senses away. I'll kick the bottle, baby, if you just take me away. 
What are the events that uh, in Patty's life that uh, set her on a, an artistic path? Her family was working class, but they were very interested in art, whether it was opera or classical music. You know, she tells the story of her parents taking she and her siblings to the Philadelphia Museum of Art and her first encounters with art in person. She grew up with it being an important thing, and she just kept going. Robert Maplethorpe is an important person in Patty's early days in New York and wonderfully chronicled in her book, Just Kids, which she won a National Book Award for in 2010. How did their relationship influence both of their growth as artists? They supported each other as artists. They embraced the pursuit of art as as a lifestyle wholeheartedly and no matter what direction one person was going in, they were there supporting them, which is kind of in this kind of unconditional, beautiful, naive, enthusiastic, unironic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the Chelsea Hotel um, in New York City is a pivotal point where she met a lot of people. Who are some of the other people that influenced her? She met Bob Newworth if we're in the if we're in the Dylan space. William Burroughs often drank at El Quixote, and she used to, you know, she loved sort of taking a tipsy Bill Burroughs outside and putting him in a cab safely. She also met Janis Joplin. She met the archivist Harry Smith. It's really kind of an endless list of people and things she was there for. You know, she tells the great story about being in El Quixote the night before Woodstock when all the bands were staying in the Chelsea. And, you know, and she was just like, yeah, this is my local. I belong here. Who would you say is probably the most important collaborator and uh, friend for her over her early days? I'm going to say it was Maplethorpe yeah. because they, he, again, that unconditional support, you got to keep working, you got to keep writing, whatever it is. And he really, I don't want to say goosed, but he, he did in that loving way push her towards, you need to read your poetry in public. You should think about putting music behind your poetry. Maybe you should think about singing. You know, he financed the recording of her first single. I I don't think it gets stronger than that. Horses is Patty's first record album that came out in 1975, and it was a great success. What was it that made this album such an outstanding debut? That's a good question. I think it's just a perfectly formed piece of art that represents Patty as a writer, as a performer, as a woman leading a band. And it also pulls in the strengths of the members of her band. You know, Richard Soul as a pianist had the ability to follow her anywhere. Lenny Kay also brought in, you know, the the early rock and roll and the pieces of that that both he and Patty loved. J.D. Dougherty, her drummer, manages in the 70s to be there with a light touch. And of course, Ivan Kral was 
you know, again, a, a classic rock kind of guy who wasn't, he wasn't taken aback by having to take orders from a woman. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, seemingly none of them were, which was kind of unusual back in those days. Yes. Yes, indeed. Patty released three more records in the 70s, Radio Ethiopia, Easter, and Wave. And on Easter, she's criticized for the cover art. Why was that? Because you can see her unshaven armpit hair. And she had, as part of her contract with Arista Records, uh, complete creative control both over the music and the visuals. And to their credit, Arista said, well, this probably means that you're not going to be placed prominently in stores in the South. But she went ahead with it anyway. There are several great songs on this record, including Because the Night, co-written with Bruce Springsteen, and there's Ghost Dance. After the release of Wave in uh, 1979, Patty stopped performing and didn't release another record until 1988. What happened in those years? She got married to her long-distance boyfriend, who was Fred Sonic Smith of the MC5. She moved to Detroit, and the two of them had a relationship that wasn't long distance. They got married and they had two kids. Uh, They were also, you know, living a life. She was still working. She was still writing. She was still studying. But her primary focus and Fred's primary focus was raising their kids. And uh, how did the music world react to, uh, to Patty suddenly stopping performing? A lot of people viewed it as some sort of betrayal. People just couldn't understand turning her back on fame and walking away from playing a football stadium in Italy to, you know, 60,000 people. Mm -hmm. Was there any kind of reaction because she was a woman quitting a career in music? I, I think it's tied into all of that. It was considered sort of letting the feminist side down, but by mostly men who would be like, I thought she was a feminist. How she just, she's just going to give up and get married and raise kids. Uh, She never said she was a feminist. And I think that she was held to the same standard as a woman as she was for her entire career. She just, there were people whose expectations she did not live up to, and they thought that they were in charge of determining, and this was just another one. Right. And then in 1988, Patty returned to music with Dream of Life, which really wasn't received that well with critics, but it did produce a wonderful anthem called People Have the Power. What can you tell me about that song? I love Patty's story about this, which is she was cooking in the kitchen, And Fred walked in and said, people have the power, write it. 
and she set to this task. She started studying speeches of the great orators, and she talked with her trusted friends and colleagues and put this beautiful anthem together that has become something that is being sung in protest marches and slogans from it are appearing on protest signs. Well, after the death of uh, her husband, Fred Sonic Smith, in 1994, Patty started her journey back into music and began recording and touring in 96. And she recorded five albums of music until 2007. 96's return debut, Gone Again, is a tour de force with so many great songs. One of the standouts is uh, Beneath the Southern Cross. What do you think of that song? Beneath the Southern Cross is the best of the old elements of the original Patti Smith group and her strength and her power today. It's improvisational, it's emotional, it pulls the audience in. She can use it to support any particular sentiment she's thinking of. I remember seeing her do it in Paris on Arthur Rimbaud's birthday. I really feel like the entire audience levitated off the floor a few inches. It's never the same, and it's just this tremendous moment, both for her and for the band, because they're coming together, they're supporting each other, they're creating this this sort of blob of rock and roll energy, and it's an amazing thing that I don't, think she gets nearly enough credit for in terms of her power as a live performer. In 97, she released Peace and Noise, which is another strong album. Uh, but I want to talk about, a little about Spell, her improvisational adaptation of Allen Ginsberg's footnote to Howell. Uh, what are your thoughts on that piece? It's a tremendous piece of work. Um, the music came from Oliver Ray, who was a new member of the band. And he, Lenny Kay is quoted as saying he likes the way Oliver hears things. You know, he was several generations younger, so he was bringing a, a different audible sensibility to, to the band. And that's another incredibly powerful number that she can use to raise energy and pull the band together. There's a really strong improvisational element of it. Her last studio album was all cover tunes, 
And I think her version of Hendrix's Are You Experienced and the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter are great. Why do you think she wanted to do a cover album? So they needed something to put out after she got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was finally inducted. And they had hoped it would be a live record, but that's something that Patty and Lenny have talked about over the years and just haven't made happen. And the element of a new record that takes her the longest is writing the lyrics. So if you do a cover record, you don't have that particular barrier. So that was why she went in that direction. Some of the songs she'd already been covering, you know, Lenny and Patty are some of the biggest rock and roll fans that are out there. So it made sense, but it's delightful. I love Gimme Shelter. I think that it's full of love and respect, and, you know, she was excited about it. Yeah. What do you think Patti Smith's legacy is in music and art? She is the natural successor to Dylan. She's the one who continued carrying the torch of poetry and the beats and a little bit of, you know, psychedelia and moved it forward. She was the first artist out of CBGBs to get signed to a record contract, and that means something. And then she came back, and she's been more prolific in the second act of her artistic life, public artistic life, than she was at the beginning. Karen Rose, thank you so much for talking to us today. Your book, Why Patti Smith Matters, is excellent, and we look forward to more from you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Karen Rose is the author of Why Patti Smith Matters. Find out more at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Christella Alonzo, Sloan Crosley, Karen Rose. Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating or to share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta or on Twitter at wprbeta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic! Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcha. Look, I am not going to die on a bridge so that you can feel like some big man on a bike. The show was engineered by Tyler Ditter. Can I just say again how very, very important your work is? Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. It's amazing. A man with such innovative vision can be so short-sighted. And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. If he seems too good to be true... He probably is.